this is Craig Brown and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used in churches for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used in the lectionary in the coming weeks. Today's passage is Luke chapter 4 verses 14 to 21. It's the lectionary reading for the third Sunday after the Epiphany in the year C cycle of the lectionary. It happens to be the text for January 23rd, 2022. Luke chapter 4 opens us to the public ministry of Jesus by depicting Jesus' experiences in two different synagogues, one synagogue in Nazareth, the other one in Capernaum. For today's episode of Passages, we're simply going to focus on the early verses of Jesus's experience of preaching in the synagogue in Nazareth. Now, the synagogue was the center of Jewish religious life, even in the first century. Luke's gospel records for us the very first service at a synagogue, not the first synagogue service of Jesus, not the first synagogue in the New Testament, but throughout all of antiquity, it's the first recording of a synagogue service, period. And what we learn in this passage of scripture is some of the interesting things that happened during a synagogue service on a Saturday in a typical synagogue. Now, shortly after this period of time in which this text occurs, there was a lectionary for prescribed readings, but not at this point in Jewish history. Lay people led the service in the synagogue. There were no clerics present. Even Pharisees, when they were present, who were regarded as kind of teachers in the Jewish law, they were still regarded as laity. The synagogue service and the practice of gathering in synagogue uh, was formed in exile, the Jewish exile that happened after the Babylonian conquest of Judah uh, that occurred in uh, three different phases, 605, 597, and 586 BCE. And it occurred at a time when there was no Jewish temple. So the formation of the synagogue service wasn't meant to replace the temple service with the destruction of the Jewish temple, but it was a way to maintain some sense of Jewish life and continuity in the absence of a temple. And so when the temple is rebuilt through varied efforts of those uh, Jewish leaders coming back from the exile, uh, but ultimately in the rebuilding of the temple under Herod the Great, the tensions between the Jewish community devoted to the temple and the Jewish community that had been much more formed around the synagogue have become uh, much more uh, fierce and embattled with one another. The clerical leaders of the temple, uh, namely the uh, Sadducees and the priests, are in some tension with some of the other Jewish leaders centered around the synagogue, namely the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, the service in the synagogue consisted of some very basic parts during these early days of the synagogue service itself. It consisted first of a reading of the Shema, from Deuteronomy, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That was like their call together as a people. Then there would be a prayer. And after the prayer, there would be a reading from the Torah, the first five books of what we as Christians often call the Old Testament or Jewish scriptures. And then there would be a reading from the prophets after that. Now, following these two readings from Torah and the prophets, there would be a sermon. If someone was there to preach a sermon, 
and oftentimes it would be a Pharisee. But if a Pharisee wasn't present, sometimes a more kind of advanced or elder layman might preach the sermon. And in this case, Jesus is preaching the sermon. Then after the sermon, there's a prayer and dismissal. In many ways, this early synagogue service is the basis for Christian worship as it comes into being at the end of the first century and into the second century. This rhythm of, of gathering together, praying, hearing scriptures, hearing a proclamation, and responding in some form in prayer become the heart of Christian worship, which is really based upon Jewish expression of the synagogue service even in the first century. What we learn here about the synagogue is that Jesus attended the synagogues and preached on a weekly basis. We learn in the early ver verses of this text that Jesus, as was his custom, would go to the synagogue every Sunday for the scripture readings and would often preach when he would go. In this case, Jesus is attending a Sabbath service in Nazareth, and he continues this custom of going to the synagogue service every single Sabbath. Now, this chapter in Luke highlights two of these different synagogues, one in Nazareth, the other in Capernaum. We're going to learn more about what happens in the service in Nazareth in the verses that follow Jesus' entrance into the synagogue. But I wanted to center on the synagogue first so that could help us understand something I think that's incredibly important. And it's the first key passageway for us, that ritual and liturgy ground our lives in God's story. You know, even Jesus does not discard or defy the rituals of the temple or the synagogue. We read in the Gospels that Jesus was observant of all of these Jewish rituals and customs. Now, he may revision and even reinvent them through his preaching and his acts of healing and his miracles and his grace, but he does so within their forms. Even in the end of this chapter in Luke's gospel, when Jesus goes to Capernaum, uh, he is teaching, and while he's teaching, uh, he engages in an exorcism while he's there. You see, that which Jesus does, he does within the form of this liturgy or the ritual around the Jewish community. And we learn something important, that our communal engagement in these same acts that we have as Christians ground us in a unique way. You know, oftentimes it's the case within our own culture today that we like to escape into other stories, escape into books, movies, other forms of entertainment or medium, and there's value to that. But when we gather together in this synagogue fashion as God's people, what we do is we find ourselves in this larger story, in God's story that's being told around us. And so even in the ups and downs in the life of the church, our commitment to gathering together, either virtually or physically, become critically important for our life and our faith formation. Now, rather than focus on the synagogue, let's take a look now at the message itself. What is it that Jesus proclaims? There's really two parts to his message. There's the text, and then there's the sermon. So let's talk about the text first. Now, since the text was not prescribed by a lectionary, in other words, Jesus wasn't told what text he had to read, Jesus makes the selection of the text himself. And in this case, he chooses Isaiah chapter 61 when they come to the reading from the prophets. 
Now, Isaiah 61 is understood by the Jewish community in that first century as kind of an eschatological sign. And what I mean by that, it's, it's the sign of the coming age of God, this awaited reign of God or presence of God's rulership within our midst was something that the Jewish community was expecting. And Isaiah 61 was one of these passages of scripture that described this age that the Jewish community was waiting for. There's, so there's this deep expectancy among the Jewish community about this text and about how it will find fulfillment. So when Jesus asks for the scroll of Isaiah, he knows exactly what he's going to read and knows exactly its meaning when he reads it. Now, this text from Isaiah 61 starts with, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And Luke, in his own writing of this story in Luke chapter 4, of course, links to that opening line from Isaiah 61 back in verse 14, where he describes Jesus's public ministry, where he writes, and Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the spirit. This is after his temptation in the wilderness and news about him spread throughout all the surrounding region. He began teaching in their synagogues, was praised by all. So he returned to Galilee in the power of the spirit. You know, for Luke, this notion of being anointed or being filled with the power of the spirit is so important in Jesus's ministry. It's the animating factor of what Jesus is doing, not only in this text, but in all the works that are to come. This anointing of the spirit is clearly part of naming Jesus's presence and identity. Uh, much has been made about this particular text and these verses that Jesus speaks on from Isaiah chapter 61. It talks about how because he, God, has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. God has a, sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And I remember when I first went to college and heard professors start talking about this particular text at a more kind of conservative or even fundamentalist theological lens. They talked about these things as if they were only symbolic in value. And as I've grown and learned more and become even more a student of this text, there's a way in which Jesus literally fulfills these things as well. So I wouldn't say it's either or, uh, but more both and, that there's a way in which these are symbolically true, that there's many ways we experience, for example, poverty, but there's also a very literal way in which we as human beings experience poverty, and Jesus has come to bring good news to the poor release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to free those who are oppressed. So what we need to understand here is that the text Jesus selects is not about those who are oppressing. It's not about those who are wealthy. It's not about those who hold others captive. It's more about something else. You see, there were plenty of texts Jesus could have selected to talk about G Jewish liberation from Roman rule. He could have talked about many other particular texts that pointed to the fact that Israel would be liberated from its enemies. But instead, Jesus points to the liberation of individuals and of groups of people who have been marginalized and oppressed. The text Jesus selects is about the effects of that liberating work. The focus is not on the oppressor. The text focuses on the oppressed and focuses on those who are in need of liberation. 
That's the text. But what about the sermon? Well, Luke only gives us one sentence from the whole sermon, whatever Jesus said. Luke simply sums it up to say, Jesus spoke this. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Uh, Take note of the very first word that Jesus speaks as an adult in Luke's gospel. Today. It's the very first thing Jesus spoke on his own that's recorded in Luke's gospel. The quotation before is a quotation of Jesus' reading of the scripture. But when Jesus speaks on his own initiative, the very first word is today. It's significant that the age that has been awaited for, Jesus is saying, is now here. Now, this text from Isaiah in, uh, that is quoted in Luke chapter 4, verse 19, talks about proclaiming the favorable year of the Lord. Uh, that year is a very specific thing within Jewish community. It's the year of Jubilee, and it's to be celebrated every 50 years. And this year of Jubilee is prescribed in the Torah, and there are certain things that go along with it, including uh, a homecoming, if you will. So there's some sense in which Jesus picks this text not only for what it describes about the kind of ministry he will have, but it also points to the fact that Jesus' homecoming is a way of somewhat aligning with this year of Jubilee and the nature of it. It's certainly not a year of Jubilee when Jesus reads this text, but he's pointing to this liberation. He's pointing to this moment in time in which the Jewish community are to forgive debts when they're allowed to go home and to transact business. It's kind of a resetting of Jewish life together. Jesus's focus in this text is less on his identity and it's more on his actions. And this is a common thread in the gospels that Jesus compels others to deduce his identity by his actions. Nothing of what Jesus reads in Isaiah identifies him as Messiah or Savior or Lord or any of the other labels we affix to Jesus. No, Jesus picks this text from Isaiah to describe what he is doing and will continue to do. And that's the key passageway here for us, that our words describe what we have done not what we hope or wish we did. You see, this passage is descriptive. I want you to notice the tense of the verb that Jesus uses in verse 21. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's not just past tense. In in the Greek syntax, it's the perfect tense, completed past action. So too often what happens for us as Christians, and I think the church writ large, is that we often take ideological positions, that we affirm certain things or we believe certain things. We like to make statements about things. Jesus begins with none of this. Jesus begins with his acts, his works, that which he will do, and others must make their choices based on that. You see, our words should describe our actions as Christians. They shouldn't convey our wish or hope. This is one of the ways we avoid hypocrisy, by being focused on the doing of our faith and the acts of it, and then let those around us conclude what that means for them. And finally, we we turn to really what is the center of the story, not the synagogue and not just the message, but ultimately the messenger, the one who is bringing this word forth. 
We learn some key truths about Jesus by his actions in this text. Number one, he's observant of Jewish ritual. Number two, he speaks in descriptive language about his ministry and his work. He, third, defines the effects of his actions. The effects of what Jesus is going to do is going to be good news to the poor, release to the captive, sight to the blind, freedom for those who are oppressed. And fourth, he does not say he will do what Isaiah has said. He says that what Isaiah has said has been fulfilled. You see, those listening in Nazareth quickly conclude that Jesus is out of bounds. I mean, keep reading the story after verse 21. You'll find out what happens to Jesus in Nazareth. Uh, for pastors, uh, we call this the Nazareth syndrome. It's one of the reasons why seldom are you allowed to serve your own home church as a pastor, for Jesus tells us that no prophet is welcome in his hometown. You see, Luke places the story at the outset of Jesus's ministry to help us understand that there are going to be some who will accept Jesus and affirm his ministry, and there will be others who reject it. Now, Matthew and Mark tell this very same story of Jesus going to Nazareth and gathering in the synagogue and preaching a sermon, but Matthew and Mark place this story much later, whereas Luke places it at the outset and sets it right against Jesus's experience at Capernaum, a different city in a different synagogue. And both groups of people make their own deductions about who Jesus is. In, according to John's gospel, Jesus performed signs and wonders and that those signs and wonders reveal his position in place. Jesus lays no claim to it. So we learn a lot here about power and position, that Jesus acts in harmony with who he is. We learn a lot about Jesus in this particular text, but what we don't learn about Jesus in this text is the title he wants, the position he wants, or the power he claims. What Jesus speaks to in this text is about that which not he will do, but which has already been done. It has been fulfilled in their hearing that this is the very mission and vision of Jesus's current ministry. And that opens us up to the key passageway here to us about integrity. Integrity brings harmony between deeds and words. And on the flip side, hypocrisy destroys integrity because it disrupts the harmony between deeds and words. Jesus minces no words at all about his work, his ministry, and his mission. This is what gives his ministry integrity. So when our starting point for Jesus is his position or title, perhaps we've missed something. That our discipleship starts with finding this kind of integrity. The kind of integrity where we will do that which God has called us to do. And by doing that, we very much become whom God has called us to be. And the words follow that. The words we use in our proclamation, in our position statements, in our mission, in our vision statements, and all the ways we describe who we are as Christians should function as a way to completely illustrate the work we have already been doing. Not the work we wish we do or want to do or want to tell others they should do. It should describe what we've been doing. Integrity brings harmony between deeds and words. And Luke wants us to hear at the outset that this Jesus is about this kind of integrity.
That's it for this week. I bid all of you grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next time.